Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. Have you gotten your invitation to CanMed 23 yet? If not, then head over to canmedevents.com now and request your invitation. Yes, CanMed 23 is an invitation-only event this year due to the limited capacity of our new location, the Marriott Marco Island Beach Resort in Florida. That's not to say it's a small event. CanMed 23 will feature three full days of cannabis science content featuring more than 30 presenters and instructors representing our key focus areas of science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. And new for CanMed 23, we will also explore psilocybin and psychedelic mushrooms. Check out all the information at canmedevents.com now, and I hope to see you there. This episode, we talked with Nathaniel Pennington. Nat is the founder and CEO of Humboldt Seed Company and has been supplying high-quality cannabis seed to growers since 2001. In 2018, they hosted the world's largest phenotype hunt, teaming with local farmers, industry experts, and top researchers, many of whom are CanMed alumni. We talked about that mega phenotype project, as well as Nat's process for breeding cannabis seeds that are consistent and reproducible. Topics include the phenotype rating sheet used to evaluate plants, the process of creating stable purebred lines, why Humboldt Seed Company chooses to sell purebred lines, the benefits of growing from seed rather than clone, the benefits of autoflower varieties and common misconceptions, and the importance of legacy growers collaborating with academics and researchers. Before we get to my conversation with Nat, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Advanced Nutrients. Founded in 1999, Advanced Nutrients was the first to develop a complete nutrient system that unlocks the true genetic potential of the cannabis plant. Since its inception, the brand has introduced more than 50 innovations to the cultivation community and continues to revolutionize the space through proprietary scientific discoveries. Learn more at advancednutrients.com. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Nathaniel Pennington. Good afternoon, Nat. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, man. I'm honored. All right, let's talk about pheno hunting. Uh, I know it's a big part of what you do out there at Humboldt Seed Company to find unique genetics that eventually make it into your new seed lines. And in fact, I watched the phenotype, I watched the phenotype mega hunt video on your website. That was a project that you did with a bunch of folks, many of whom are CanMed alumni, which was great to see. And I'll put a link to that video in the show description so people can check it out. But for those who haven't heard of it or haven't seen the video, maybe you can describe what you guys did and how it's different than a typical pheno hunt that you do. Sure. So I'll give you a little bit of like set and setting for the uh, impetus for that that giant project. So it's, 
go back in time to 2016, 17, and you know, we had had years of of medical cannabis in California, of course, being the we we passed that, you know, in 1996, the the first medical cannabis uh, program statewide, and that was amazing. Uh, but you know, we, we didn't have scale like we have, like you know, what's needed to uh, supply a recreational marketplace. So, um, but there were a lot of things about the fact that we had finally passed a recreational cannabis bill. Our, uh, it was actually an is- a voter initiative, but it was kind of a little scary because, you know, Colorado and Oregon had, had come after us with medical, but then had actually gone ahead of us with the recreational. And so we were kind of seeing the potential to just have kind of monoculture and large scale agricultural practices that, you know, I feel like we should learn from the mistakes of big monoculture and, you know, like, so that said, we knew what was coming. Uh, 2018, we were going to start our recreational program in the state of California. Um, being in Humboldt, which has like, you know, some of the most deep roots in cannabis, probably of any place or, or as deeply rooted as any place in the world, I would say. Um, you know, one thing that we saw as the seed company or one of the bigger seed companies was like, let's make the best of this and take the opportunity of scale, whatever opportunities are there, let's definitely take advantage of them. And and we felt like one of the biggest opportunities that the scaling pre- presented was the ability to look at, uh, cast a huge wide net for phenotype analysis. And we had already, I have a background in doing genomics with salmon restoration. That is a, you know, a big uh, effort in the North coast and Humboldt County in particular, we have rivers that have been, you know, decimated for the once abundant salmon run. So I was really involved with that working with a agricultural school like UC Davis and their conservation genomics department. I kind of would ask around to the professors and fellow, you know, people working grad students and whatnot in labs and just ask, what would be the first thing that you would do if you were in a position like us having a license and having a nursery and having an established seed company? There hasn't been a lot of, there's been a wonderful amount of work done on cannabis breeding, but it hasn't been able to be shared publicly because this we've been under prohibition for a hundred years. So what would you do? And, and we kept hearing over and over again, well, I'd just look through 10,000 plants. I'd plant 10,000, you know, of as much diversity as you can possibly get plant it all in big giant fields and, and just go and hunt through for what really speaks to the needs of the community and uh, so I kind of started wrapping my mind around what it would take to do that and and realized that it was actually possible as long as we did it really collaboratively. And so in 2016 and 17, we just kind of were establishing partnerships 
with farms that were likely to have uh, a big scale out and have a lot of acreage come the first year of recreational in California. And so partnering up with, I think, five farms at the end of the day, not including our two facilities. So all in all, around seven locations, we actually got up to the 10,000 plant mark that we wanted to be able to look at over the course of a summer. And it was all genetics that, you know, following suggestions that were intended to be fairly diverse. So like, you know, first generation polyhybrid type stuff. And uh, then the, the really fun part of it was, you know, who decides what's the, the greatest of all, or not even just the greatest, but who even decides what are the, in the top uh, one or 5% of the best. And that's a good point. And that's a good point too. So w- when you were doing this, did you have sort of a, a prototype type plant that you wanted to discover or was it, Hey, let's just plant this all and see what comes out. Well, so that's a great question. And, and kind of where we were going, we did have a phenotype rating system that we had developed several years before. And we've published that on our website. We've published it in a few other, uh, you know, kind of open cannabis um, research internet sites. But, um, and so we tried to share it around and it's still available on our website under the learn section. And then the, the ideal phenotype to me was, was what this broad diverse of people that were in involved in the industry, even all the way down to a bud tender at a dispensary who sees a lot of people coming through and what they're asking for. And so, as you mentioned, a lot of like alumni for CanMed and and a lot of probably people that have been speakers at your guys's events uh, ended up being the the invitees. Uh, and whether they had did the Fino hunt with us and then went on to do CanMed or vice versa, um, yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of overlap. But basically, we we wanted to have other breeders, um, geneticists. We wanted to have dispensary owners we had lab technicians or or even people developing laboratory equipment uh we did have bud tenders and we had um other farmers too so we had a lot of other farmers of course because we were working with all these farms so they all wanted to go along on the tour and the of course the rating system that we developed kind of helps to guide what might get selected into the top percentages. And so in doing that, basically like our, our phenotype rating system is built out in a way that, that it's numeric. And so you can put it into something like an access database and then query out features or traits that you're looking for in, in a plant, even down to, something like color we you know right now it just so happens that purple cannabis has become trendy again (laughs) it's kind of always of course being a cannabis breeder uh you know we we kind of pay attention to the trends but we don't let them dictate our decisions so much but but we we might plan on making more purple cannabis 
uh, seeds this year because we know that that's something that's popular. But yeah, and how how easy is it to sort of adapt to different trends? Because I imagine it's got to take you know a good amount of time to do the pheno hunt to find the you know the good genetics and then to sort of have a stable set of seeds too that's going to give you a consistent phenotype, right? So how how quickly can you sort of you know address the changes in the market? Luckily, if you do massive pheno hunts every year and hold on to as many of these diverse types that speak to people in, you know, to a diverse group of people including yourself and um, you know, you can't just let your own opinions totally rule your decision-making, then you've got it, you know, and, and that's been the wonderful thing about us. It's also kind of our um, cross to bear, let's just say, but we've got so many years of built up genetics in whether it's in storage in the form of germ plasm, that's like, you know, kept in our, climate controlled seed cooler area or whether it's actually still kept as a clone from a phenotype hunt or in tissue culture or so on and so forth you we've got it so when a trend happens you know Mm. you, you you're dealing with what you know and your own um essentially your own breeding line which which makes a huge difference because if you just pick up a clone that's happens to fit the bill, it's it's purple and it produces a lot and it tests pretty well. The problem is, is this, if it's not a at all like a pure bred line, then as soon as you try to do any breeding with it, it's just going to produce this vast array of phenotypic variation. And so, you know, you're much much better off like having even just germplasm that's been stored or seeds for those that um, and seeds that have been stored for even five or 10 years because it hasn't been popular recently, but all of a sudden, you know, blueberry smelling cannabis becomes widely popular. And um, so you can just kind of pull that out and, and there it is. And it's any serious breeder should be, thinking about creating stable lines for that's like your toolbox as a real breeder. You, if you're just going with random clones that you get out of, I mean, that's a great way to start a breeding program, but that's like literally step one is having like a good clone that you find from a phenotype hunt. And that's what I think a lot of people don't understand is like, you know, we started doing these big phenotype hunts many years ago and keeping clones, but then it's really the beginning of the process because before, you know, you, you should release anything to the public or before you can, the biggest thing I try to get through people's mind is like you to have something that's a real breedable line it should produce repeatable results so like you could you should be able to take one seed and grow a plant out of it and cross it with whatever if you're making a hybrid seed or if you're making an inbred line and and have it produce a batch of seeds that 
that are both uniform and and then you could go back and take another seed from the same population perform that same experiment and have fairly similar or the same result and it's kind of just like the basis of all science is that essentially if you look at making a cross of a cannabis cross as as an experiment it's not really you're not finding out any result unless you can do that again and have a similar result and so you know like if we cross this you know nepalese type cannabis that got these wonderful features with this older variety that's been grown in you know jamaica for the last 100 years then you get this amazing turpin and cannabinoid combination those kinds of discoveries can only happen when you have um, relatively pure lines that you're working with and how hard is it how hard is it to get to that pure line i mean because you've obviously in most cases have to start with that um you know very heterozygous type plant right so how difficult is it to sort of get it to a place where it's pure and it's going to be creating, you know, repeatable seeds and that when you, when you're crossing it, it's going to give you a a sort of repeatable result. So that's a really, really great question. And it has a lot to do with how um, heterozygous or homozygous the plant might be when you start. And so if you did, let's just say happen to find a, a seed, you know, an accession or a group of seeds that came from an isolated area people are calling like landrace seeds that have for the most part just been bred within that population and selected uh, for, let's say, you know, 10 years or something like that. Then that's just kind of like a naturally going to be naturally fairly homozygous population. And so you're kind of jumping ahead. But but then again, the the negative of that is that, you know, when we've done that and gone like, you know, into the deep into the interior of Jamaica and found, um, you know, the Jamaican lamb's bread, for example, the propensity for hermaphroditic traits was incredibly high. And there was like a lot of non-commercial right. type stuff. And so really more often than not you're probably working with with more modern cannabis types and the answer to that is anywhere from i would say four to eight generations and and it depends on how you're doing it whether you're selfing a plant which is basically Mm -hmm. uh you know, taking a clone of the genetically identical plant and reversing the sex of it, um, you know, which is essentially just how we make feminized seeds in general. And so you you take away the uh, the hormone ethylene or its its effect that the plant naturally produces. You block it, and then it goes to to make male organs rather than female organs. But the the chromosomes in the pollen granules are a female by doing that you can make a self-pollinated cannabis plant which really would not normally happen in nature because cannabis is a 
for the most part, a dioecious plant, meaning that it has a male, uh, separate male flower on a separate plant and a female flower on a separate plant, as opposed to most plants are monoecious where they can pollinate themselves. Um, and that's not to say that all plants are pollinating themselves all the time. There is a lot of, uh, you know, bees obviously are doing their share of the work and cannabis is wind pollinated. So I like to compare corn where you have the tassels are the male parts of the corn plant. And then the silk is the female part. And, and probably there's a lot of self-pollination, of course, because the tassels are right above. But in a cornfield, there's probably also, you know, there's wind and things like that that blow that pollen uh, certainly over to adjacent plants. So, but back to cannabis, we can self-pollinate cannabis now with, um, you know, through the methods that we've, un, you know, figured out with, with the self you know, sex reversal and things like that. And that's a really fast way to get to full homozygosity or, um, you know, more, much more uniform and purebred lines. I've kind of started calling them purebred lines more and more because people just kind of cringe at the inbred line, but inbred line is really the term. <laughs> and, and in plant breeding, it's not, it's not really a bad thing when, especially when you know that the goal is to have a highly inbred line and then find something that is really, I would like to say like heterotic or just really mixes well. That's also an inbred line. And that is what a true hybrid seed is. And right. And that's when you have uniformity and, heterosis or otherwise known as hybrid vigor. And uh, that's kind of like the Holy grail of, of all seeds for agriculture purposes. Um, you know, that's the corn that we all, you know, like the sweet corn that we are harvesting out right now, just for our little kitchen garden is they're a hundred percent going to be hybrid seed. And so that's something that we we're all striving. I think many, um, cannabis seed companies that are more uh, have a little bit more of a scientific slant to them are are working on that because it'll certainly be make not only growing cannabis easier but it'll make a you know more repeatable experiments which is kind of what we were talking about before where so so going back to this mega pheno hunt that you did so. Yes. At the conclusion of it, you've identified how many different, you know, sort of standouts. And then what's the next step after that? Right. So we identified what we really only kept 1%. And it, and with even the goal was to keep less than 1% because even 1% of 10,000 right. is, is a heck of a lot of plants to have to, you know, turn into mother plants or preserve with tissue culture. And, and so with the 1% that we did keep, we put a lot of those into different growing environments like indoor grows, uh, mixed light growing and, and sort of just 
you know, shared them back with our community. And, you know, we, we immediately did release a few things as clones and then very quickly started um, breeding those for seed, like a seed line stability. And um, what I know that some plant breeders would shake their head at me, but, you know, we're not, we still do release some of our purebred lines to the public because it's just the best product that we have right now in the cannabis space for people to be able to grow with seed and still have product, like still have, I mean, one of the biggest things that we think, because we sell seeds at retail too, for like hobbyists and and people that want to grow their own medicine. And um, they're just a lot more accessible and they're actually a lot more vigorous. And in a lot of respects they're I think, you know, it's a cleaner way of growing cannabis because you don't have pests and pathogens that can come with clones. We're all seeing mm-hmm. the hop latent viroid thing. You know, it's sweeping right. across the industry and devastating and, and hop latent viroid doesn't really even transmit through seed very much. Um, if at all. So, so basically it's a much better way. It's just that we haven't done the real breeding work to make the seeds produce the way that, and and if we're going to say something has, you know, this amount of CBD and this amount of THC, or it should have a smell that's, you know, blueberry muffin is one of our more famous ones that people like, or it finishes you know, the flowering time is this, that, or the other, we want it to really be that way. And that's something that you can't have unless you make, um, seeds populations uniform. And so whether that means kind of sharing what I think most seed breeders would consider their sort of intellectual property, um, Mm. we've kind of said to ourselves, well, look, this is what the the cannabis community needs and we know that we're giving away some of our IP, but you know, good luck trying to do what we do because it's, it's actually like really hard. (laughs) And so for now we're like, you want to follow in our footsteps, like go for it and um, good luck. And especially considering that like as the developer of many of these genetics, you know, not only is it a real challenge for us to maintain so many and constantly be, you know, generation after generation and selection and all that, but how would, how would someone else know what to select for and what phenotypic expressions that to kind of like cue in on just jumping in, you know, say we're releasing something that's, you know, eight generations in of selection and breeding, you know, try to jump in and, and know, be as familiar with that plant as, as like our extended team that we've got is, is familiar with it. And it's, it's just would be impossible to, to know what you're even looking at. And that's, I think it's kind of a beautiful thing about, cannabis that it rewards people that that love it and have had a lot of interaction with it 
and you know you see people like Allison Justice that maybe haven't been quite as have had quite like the longevity of Humboldt Seed Company but but are definitely not afraid to get their hands dirty and are jumping right into you know being out there in the field and um, observing how the plants grow and uh, doing a lot of, you know, tons of testing, whether that's a hundred percent in the lab or, you know, con- a little bit of consumption mixed with the lab. <laughs> you, know, it's, it, <laughs> you can do both, you know, and, and, and I think both are valuable, but I think that it is kind of important to, um, just be out there year after year. And I, I mean, I'm sure that she would, you know, if, if we were to give her a call right now and, and say, you know, have you, uh, do you learn something new and, and incredibly eye-opening every single year, you know, since like the Fino hunt and, uh, where, where she came out and, and so many people came out and got a chance to just see fields and fields of cannabis, like, you know, that they had never even imagined and then going and doing that themselves now for, for years with, with hemp and in different climates and in different regions. Um, I guarantee you, Allison would be like every single year I learn, I mean, the, the yeah. plant just it blows my mind. So it's, it's something that you, you can't just jump in, you know, with, and think that even if you have, you know, I mean, my, one of my good friends, Kay is a PhD plant breeder. She graduated from UC Davis. She's worked in cannabis now for two or three years. And, you know, she teach she has a lot to teach me, but I would venture to say that she has probably, you know, called me up for advice about, you know, how the cannabis plant's going to react to this, um, you know, breeding strategy versus the other breeding strategy more, more than, than vice versa. And so I think we're seeing this great mix of, academia and um and hands-on experiential knowledge and it's it's going to do the plant i I think it's going to do us some favors and and start to accelerate things a lot and um people need to be minded though you know people have to people from the old industry space has have to be open-minded to you know to traditional breeding practices and even, you know, marker assisted breeding. And, you know, it's going to take a lot, I think, for people to be open to gene editing and GMO. And I'm not, I'm not endorsing that. I don't think we need that right now at all. And so there's, I mean, there's so much work that can be done with um, the tactics that we've used for the last hundred years in humanity that, we can apply to cannabis before we would ever need to jump into that space. But, you know, no matter well, what, it's, it's probably, 
it's probably helpful that the plant's so diverse too, right? So it's not so much that we need to necessarily edit in tricks from other plants that um, to apply to cannabis where, you know, we could hopefully just find it in the diverse genetics that are already out there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, one of the greatest, one of the things that's, that really gave me another boost of excitement about what I do was starting to work with the, uh, what we call auto flowering or ruderalis is sort of the, and, um, you know, I started about eight years ago, just toying with it and, um, you know, getting some seeds from over in Europe where it, it actually kind of had been a little bit more common and popular than in the United States. And just saying to myself, like, I just see what this is all about because, you know, I've heard mixed stories and, right. and, and so firsthand, you know, that's cannabis is something that like, you know, you really got to just, like I said, get your, get your fingers dirty and get in there to really know. So got these ruderalis seeds was, it took a few years to figure out some of the nuances, like how they're very sensitive to um, the early two or th- first two or three weeks of their life. They need to be uh, put into a, you know, I think the best way in the long run, the best way to grow autoflower is going to be to direct seed them in, in fields or, or into mm-hmm. pots or whatever, wherever your growing media is just to get them directly put in there. And I think the seeds need to be a little bit cheaper before people are going to do that. So that's kind of on people like me to help make it more reasonable. But, um, you know, they they need to be, if they get root bound at all, even the slightest bit of uh, root bound constriction, then they'll go right into flower. But other than that, there is so many advantages of, of that type of cannabis. And what I learned quickly was that, you know, this is kind of back to like the editing, not GMO, but just like something like CRISPR. Um, but you don't need that tool. But what I realized was that you can, through three or four, four or five generations, you can, for all intensive purposes, cut the trait of auto flowering. So, you know, no matter what, I'm not going to pay attention to the day length and flower in the fall. I'm going to flower after, you know, I'm going to be finished. Let's just say finished flowering after two and a half to three months. That's a ruderalis cannabis. And you can cut that trait and paste it into any of the popular, photo period types or, or rare cannabinoid types, um, CBG, CBD. Uh, I haven't done it personally with THCV, but, but my point is, is that it doesn't have baggage. And a lot of people assume that like, oh, it's autoflower. It's going to be, you know, low THC or it's going to have a loose, flower that doesn't look good enough to be, you know, sold commercially or um you're restricted to a certain set of cannabinoids. And and I just 
have found none of that to be the case. And, and so that's been kind of a, you know, as you said, like cannabis is diverse and look at this, like lo and behold, someone who had been breeding for 15 years prior, uh, in a cannabis Mecca could find this new trait that just, you know, one of the big things for me is like so many people are utilizing the light deprivation techniques to make their cannabis flower Mm -hmm. more quickly in an outdoor setting. And I was always just kind of distraught about the amount of plastic that was being, you know, put on this earth through, through that. And I mean, we're guilty of it ourselves. We utilize light depth. I'm not saying that we're above that or anything, but it, I just knew that, Hey, here's a way that we can have nature, um, do this for us. And it, it also allows people in areas that, you know, like up in Canada, we had a lot of demand for our auto flower genetics there because, um, you know, they have such a grow short growing season that, yeah. uh, you know, that was just wonderful for them to have something that, you know, it's great to be able to plant something and then know this is when I'm going to be harvesting it. And whereas yeah. with photo, photo period cannabis, sure. We know when we're going to be harvesting it, but it's always going to be in October. It's not like it right. you have a choice. <laughs> you can't. So, you know, farmers can plan and we're not having to sacrifice the traits that, you know, we have come to know and love in, in the photo period type of cannabis. And, and it was just like a whole nother set of work that was, you know, of course, as a plant breeder, you're a, a big job is actually kind of sometimes what, what you need, you know, it gets you re-inspired. And, and so that for us was, was inspiring, but, but of course we haven't changed our program of just whether it's photo period or autoflower, um, generally just exploring this incredibly diverse species and, you know, the un, untold vast uses that are, that we're discovering all the time. It's and and you guys, I know are really a big contributor to the understanding and exploration of the plant. And I really appreciate every, you know, every paper that you put out or all of the, uh, you know, conferences and, and networking events. And it's just, a great way to connect all the people that are so interested in this and, and uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a diverse, it's a diverse problem and it's going to take all of us in our different areas of expertise to kind of push us forward. And that's one of the, you know, one of the reasons we love doing CanMed is because we get to bring together the, the growers, the researchers, the doctors, the, um, the industry people and everybody to kind of try to figure out, you know, how we, how we move this thing forward. And one of the things you mentioned earlier was, you know, one of the, the things that we highlighted at the last can, uh, can med with a group from Humboldt actually, um, sort of talking about 
marrying the experience of the folks who have had the hands-on experience with the plants, with the academics who are, uh, you know, researching the plants now and sort of, you know, finding the scientific reasons for what you guys may have already discovered and yeah. sort of, you know, bringing that information to everybody. So um, I think yeah. that's a really, uh, really important part. I'm assuming you're talking about like Daniel Hendricks and then Doc. Yeah. The- yeah, yeah. Those guys are some of my best friends. And, uh, Lele. Yep. 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 Um and that's exactly right. You know that those they're pioneers here in Humboldt and um Doc is just another breeder that has been around even well before my time. Um and somebody that I have a lot of respect for. And you're absolutely right. You know, it's uh bringing the the academia and you know, this world that has existed for so long, you can't discredit it because, you know, whether or not, um, you know, we, we were outlaws at, at a time and <laughs> whether we're still outlaws in the eyes of, of some, you know, um, it, it is and, and has been a, plant that's been appreciated uh by humanity and 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 a useful plant for since the beginning you know time immemorial let's just say and um you know there's no denying that that it's thankfully finally coming into uh you know out of the the sort of darkness and clandestine world that it was in and and so heck yeah, let's merge together all these skills and um, capabilities. And, and I think, you know, circling back to the, the phenotype mega hunt, um, you know, Hendrix team, they were big involved with that whole project. And, um, you know, that, that maybe was like one of the, you know, earlier attempts at, that kind of a gathering and a meeting of the minds and uh, yeah. you know, gosh, I can't deny that just being close to universities like UC Davis and, and even what's now called Cal Poly Humboldt um, used to be Humboldt state, but it's a polytechnic uh, university now part of Cal Poly's program. Um, it has a lot of potential for us, but, and we've been able to utilize that those resources there a little bit. Um, gosh, I don't know if I should even admit, but sometimes more, you know, in a little bit of sneaky way. <laughs> uh, and universities can touch hemp, and they can, um, right, you know, do some sequencing work. We've done some sequencing work, whether it was uh, technically hemp or not. Let's maybe save that for when, when we're all laughing about <laughs> laughing about how silly the laws were in 30 years, but, uh, you know, doing stuff with the universities is just, you know, in the normal ag and plant breeding world, that's so commonplace and it's so critical to being able to, you know, both, um, kind of foster a, young generation of people that are educated in 
in plant breeding or a skill or trade or what whatever and and doing it in in a real setting that is like the essentially a business that has you know an economic future and and a value and we can't do that right now we can't do it well let's just say at least and so a lot still needs to happen um but Mm. but we're we're appreciate we're we're glad that we're close to uc davis i'll just tell you that and we're already developing as many uh connections and and you know gathering as much information as we can and you know humboldt seed company is I think it shocks a lot of people that we're, you know, self-capitalized and we don't have a massive research budget. But when we do have budgets that, and we, we do put, spend a lot of money on doing R and D and research. And um, we, we've seen kind of some of the pitfalls of, taking on massive investment and having, you know, kind of, you know, having the folks that essentially lent you money breathing down your neck and saying, you know, well, look, I don't care about what you're doing to make the plant better for five years from now. Like we need to get out of the red today (laughs) and you need to start. We want our money now. (laughs) We want our money now. And so, that I mean, I I thank you know our lucky stars that we've been able to navigate without having to do that because you know every day we wake up at Humboldt Seed Company and say what can we do to you know make this plant more accessible and better and more consistent and you know discover unique diverse useful types and so that's just a great uh mission to to have when we wake up in the morning and it's all been very organic it's all been you know through connections like you know just introductions from someone like allison justice having come and participated in one of our pheno hunts and I think earlier, like you asked how we're keeping up with that. And, you know, as you can imagine, we did the 10,000 plant hunt. We did another substantial hunt the next year. And then we really started to have um, the effects of COVID were definitely made for some of the smaller hunts that we (laughs) ever had. So I think in, in 2020, uh, in 2021 we we didn't have quite as vast of a population to look through just because we really weren't um you know going from farm to farm potentially spreading covid and <laughs> looking for, <laughs> but um we still i think every year we've maintained at least like looking through 3000 and and this year we're looking through 5000 plants actually more because we've got our facilities over in New York but um yeah it's it's definitely you know it's our right now it's it's the biggest thing tomorrow I'll be looking at 
going to a farm called Casa Flor, which is an outdoor farm in Mendocino County. So I'll drive from here where I am in Humboldt at our, what, what I call our anchor farm and uh, drive down there with the film crew and revisit Casa Flor because of course to do the way that we do it, and this is fairly labor intensive, but we go and take all of the vegetative cuttings or clones off every single plant down there and then um, store them, keep them in veg and just essentially just kind of keep them alive uh, until they're essentially about ready to harvest. And so we then go and, and return. So this will be our return visit to Casa Flor and do our whole rating system. And I think mm. this time tomorrow we're going to have, we will have a video crew and then we've got actually our European team is visiting this week. So we're taking them with us to help do some rating and analysis. And then the, the folks there at Casa Flor are going to be obviously out there in the field with us because you know, the way it works is we'll give them seeds that we have interest in exploring. So like seeds for exploration and, and that's not so much the ones that are always commercially available to people because those ones are, you know, we've taken the time to make them uniform and consistent, but the advantage for somebody like Casa Flor is for one thing, they do a lot of fresh frozen uh, extract. So that being said, it's not as detrimental to have some diversity in a population when you're doing uh, a fresh frozen extract, because it essentially you're homogenizing the population. So it kind of averages out the phenotypic variation, which mm-hmm. is, which is kind of great. Like, cause it gives you this sort of what the, the cross or what the population created as an average <laughs> when you sort of mix it together. So from, yeah. a, from a chemotype perspective, we'll find out what that cross produced on average. And of course, then we'll go and use the opportunity in collaboration with Lou and the team at Casa Flor to find unicorns, we call them, or phenotype hunt winners within each individual group that we shared with them to to hunt. And so there's some give and take, like we kind of often provide those seeds uh, free of charge as R&D populations. And then there's some trust that we have developed with the team there that, you know, they're going to take good care and, and allow us to come and take the tissue samples or the, you know, the clones basically. And, and we have to tag every single plant individually. And so we have to know that those tags are all going to be there and be attached to the initial, you know, the, the plants, uh, not, you know, goofed around or whatever. And, and so that's, that's a relationship or a partnership and what they get back is they get some 
a, a cool video. Like if you folks want to check out other phenotype hunt videos, there's a great Casa Floor phenotype hunt video on our website right now as well from last year. And and they get exposure, but also they'll have access. Like the one of the plants that we picked from last year's phenotype hunt, um, Casa Floor is doing an entire clone propagated uh like a small field of that plant in particular and we're going to go and and look at that as well so that's kind of like the instant gratification that you can get from finding you know a, a unicorn or a, an amazing pheno is that you can just turn around and and the next year um will often offer it back to that whoever whatever farm it was and say hey you know if you want go ahead and propagate the crap out of this and then you'll have kind of almost an exclusive market for this new thing that we've found the year before but the seeds themselves we won't put those out more often than not it takes us uh, two years to really feel comfortable sharing those after we find a pheno because you know that's we can often get at least two generations in a year and so, you know, it may be four generations later before we really feel like it's ready to um, be in the market as a seed that, you know. And that's four generations of, of selfing, right? Because you're not going to have a male to, to breed with, right? Right. Yep. And, and that's kind of what we're doing now, but it's selfing with selection in between. And this is something that's mm. like now I'm sharing some trade secrets and uh, <laughs> I probably most people would say you've already shared a ton of them on this interview, but, but here's one that <laughs> here's one that actually I feel like is not common knowledge or if you picked up a book or whatever. Um, so, you know, when you sell something, it's makes a massive difference how, homozygous or heterozygous it was in the first place so if you self something that's just like a random clone that is you know you have no idea what really the background is like somebody might just say this is cookies times runts or whatever the heck and and all of those things are really very heterozygous um if you were to do like you know, an analysis of, of how much variation they're capable of producing. And, and so if you take that clone and, and you start your project with something like that, then you're going to, the selfing is going to create just a huge array of, cause you're really going to see what's going to come out of self pollination is grandma and great grandpa and you know like just the whole family tree is gonna all of a sudden come back out which can be kind of useful for certain strategies in breeding actually it's kind of neat but but it's not specifically moving you a big step towards uniformity or homozygosity it's um so you know we had done so selfing's not like it's not going to, those seeds that result from selfing aren't like a, for all intents and purposes, a clone of the mother. It's, no, they can not be just as diverse. 
yeah, it yeah. may be, it may sometimes in some cases it can even be a little bit more diverse, but it's a good step in the right direction. Yeah. And so, um, but what, what the process for us, it's what's really important is like there, I mean, there are situations where we've been doing sibling crosses for many years or we already have a fairly homozygous line, or maybe it's something that came from a specific part of the world that was isolated like a land race. And so the selfing of something like that is not going to split the atom open right. and make a ton of diversity, but selfing something that's probably, you know, part of one of these more modern, super high, you know, like poly hybrids that are just kind of like that will create a bunch of diversity. And that's not to say that that's not the, a good way to start making a more purebred line. It's just when you do that, know that you're going to have to self and then do a pheno hunt afterwards to find. And the purpose of that pheno hunt afterwards would be to find the ones that are expressing the most similarity to the pro, the progenitor. Yeah. The, um, so you basically have the clone, you've selfed it. Now you look through the progeny and you're looking for something that resembles that pro progenitor clone or the original. And, and so, you know, the assumption is that that one has a fair amount of homozygosity that it inherited because of its uniformity. And, and that could not be necessarily true, but for what's important to us, which is like phenotypic expression, cannabinoid, chemotypic expression, it's probably the case. So then, then you take that and now you're going to self that one. And, and so that would be an S2 generation. And now you're going to start seeing a, a much, much more uniformity in the progeny. And, but still, you know, if you had to do a pheno hunt for the S1 and it was vast and it was diverse, you're probably going to have to do a pheno hunt for the S2. And then mm -hmm. now when you get further and further, and here's the interesting part that is what I would consider a little trade secret is there's a point in which you have so much uniformity and we're at this point with quite a few of our lines now and that these aren't necessarily things that we're sharing now with the world because it actually starts to become deleterious to, you know, you're you're having something that's too inbred to share it in and of itself. You're, you're but you're on well on the path to making a true breeding hybrid seed now. But the interesting thing is, yeah. is you don't, you do selection maybe, but the selection is actually, if you look for the biggest, healthiest, happiest plant, you're actually probably not picking the most homozygous plant. And, and this is where doing sequencing and looking for homozygosity can be helpful. And, you know, definitely it's kind of like a marker assisted breeding. It's not exactly a marker, but, you know, finding out which one of the progeny is the most homozygous and then moving forward with that. Ironically though, it's not, you, you've now, I'd say once you get to like S4, S5, you're no longer looking for the most vigorous, healthiest plant because that is likely the most heterozygous, 
the most heterozygous plant. And so it's a weird switch that you have to do. Um, And it's also around that time where you're switching from like, this is something that I would personally want to grow. Like if I was a farmer to like, no, this is something that I'm moving towards being a highly inbred line that is now going to make a true hybrid seed. And so that's um, like, oftentimes we'll just sprout a tray of S4 type seeds and look for the ones that looks just like not the, the most mutated one or the most terrible one, but certainly no longer are we trying to pick the best. It's just like, you have to start picking the ones that are average or true to, to form. And, and yeah, you know, cause you're, you're working against All right, Nat. I gotta let you go. Yeah. <laughs> I just keep giving away. It's been much more than 15 minutes. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta let you go. Um, but before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to plug any social media websites, resources. I know you've mentioned a few, uh, during our conversation, but now's a good time to kind of bring those up and I will put links to them in the show description as well. Yeah, we have our website. We also have a YouTube channel. And of course we have the classic cannabis Instagram account that kind of is always in danger of potentially getting turned off, but the website and the YouTube are really great and stable. So HumboldtSeedCompany.com and YouTube channel is just Humboldt Seed Company. And our Instagram is the Humboldt Seed Company at the Humboldt Seed Company. And thank you so much for having me on. And uh, yeah, sorry about all the tangents, but no, it, I love talking about this. No, stuff. <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure. And we appreciate you sharing some trade secret secrets with us. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, and, <so> I, <laughs> and we hope to see you out at, uh, at a CAMED event. It'd be great to catch up. Yes, I know. I'm, I've been, meaning and wanting to go for several years now so i'm gonna be there and you bet on it i'll be in touch with you about that when I come. all right thanks again thank you ben i hope you enjoyed my conversation with nathaniel pennington check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Advanced Nutrients. Our next episode will drop October 26th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, please do check out the new and improved CanMedEvents.com. The team really did an exceptional job updating the website with all the information about our CanMed23 event. And of course, you can still find videos of all the previous CanMed presentations and panels in the CanMed archive. You can also find all the previous episodes of the podcast as well. And while you're there, make sure you sign up for email alerts to get all the notifications around this innovative industry-leading event. I also invite you to engage with us on all our social media platforms. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed events. And lastly, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Doing so really helps us improve our rankings and reach more listeners. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to join us on the next CanMed Coffee Talk.